Hello and welcome. You're listening to We Talk About That, where we bring you interesting information about science, history, and anything in between. Generally, that will not entail political or divisive topics or news, unless it's a controversial uh, technological breakthrough or something of that nature. As always, I'm Aaron, and my co-host Gabe is here with us today as well. Hi, Gabe. Hi, Aaron. Doing great down here in balmy Texas. (laughs) Yeah, I've seen the on the news the heat waves coming through. I mean, I know it's not the middle of the summer, so it's going to get worse, but <laughs> it's going to get worse depending on your perspective. <laughs> well, I, I suppose I'm a little tainted because I spent 18 months in in the Horn of Africa where like the hottest temperature was like 130. <laughs> well, I'm really hoping it doesn't get that warm down here. Just the humidity alone is <laughs> is enough the temperature oh man i couldn't imagine 130 you gen- I, I would usually skip lunch like i didn't want to walk outside <laughs> yeah i bet which well, seems it's... counterintuitive because like if you're in a hot environment like you need to eat food or else your body's just not going to function right Mm-hmm. right but you just don't feel like it yeah i don't know I think my garage is probably close to 130, but it could be. <laughs> just kidding. I cracked the door today, so if we have any background noise, that that's why. So I don't die, but it, yeah. it might uh, decrease the the audio quality. So I know it's only been a week, but what's new with you, man? Well, not much, honestly. Um, just closing on the the last property up in uh, Minnesota on thursday and just wrap that up and just doing doing home inspections climbing around in attics and listening to podcasts so <laughs> not much new how about you um, what's going on out there are you, are you uh ever well i'm sure you will eventually any any trips back up north here that you think of um I ask because I would like you to crawl around in my attic. I'm trying to. Yeah. I want to put some Cat Five throughout my house. Right. Yeah, I don't know. I might have to make the trip just for that. No, I I think we have something planned for June, but I'm not 100 percent sure. I got to check with my scheduler. Um. So the first thing that I kind of wanted to talk today about is something that I've been tracking since. Mm. last year sometime but they've been working on this for 30-ish years from you know planning phase all the way to execution but it's it's the james webb telescope if you're not aware of what that is it's the basically the biggest telescope that nasa has created and well that well they created it but uh it's the it's the largest telescope in in human history so that's really exciting Um, They they launched it last December. And since then, you know, it took like 30 days to reach the area that it's going to be in in an orbit. And uh, they've also been calibrating. It's got like 18 huge mirrors on it that all need to work, you know, when they're calibrated together to create create like a much better picture. Right. So what's been taking them so long? (laughs) That's what I want to know. Is it? the technology's not there or is it um, just the Hubble's been doing such a good job or I guess I'm not that familiar with this, honestly. No. uh, So it's, it's been taking so long and they anticipated that just because uh, once it got out there, they had to um, deploy, there's like a, there's like a solar shield on some part of it. 
you could probably find a picture of it, but they had to deploy that and that had to take some time. And then after that, they deployed the mirrors and the mirrors are not, like I said, they're, they're 18 individual mirrors that make up one big primary mirror. And okay, those all need to be angled exactly right. So the first image that they looked at, I don't remember the name of the star, you know, it had some, you know, XYZ dash 1200 or something. Um, they were looking at that uh, just to see where they were in the first image that they found. And this is pre-configuration, so they knew this was going to happen. But that one star, because there's so many mirrors, it had 18 different stars in the picture. <laughs> oh, that makes sense. They have to. They actually have to calibrate it and line all the mirrors up so the image like hits Correct. the yeah. aperture. I think I traditionally see. a lot of the other telescopes that have been for like, uh, you know, uh, observation of like the stars and stuff, which obviously are in space. I mean, obviously we we have big telescopes on on Earth, but the the uh, the light pollution on Earth and the the atmosphere really dims out uh, what we can see and how far we can see. But mm -hmm. uh, a lot of the telescopes out in space, they have one big primary mirror, just one. Right. Uh, but if if you think about uh, if if you take a mirror and you shine a light on it, you can use the angle of what you're holding the light at to bounce the light off of the mirror to light up, you know, like a space on the counter or someplace behind you. But like mm -hmm. that space that it's lighting up is huge. Right. So what they're doing with the 18 different mirrors is, is it's like having 18 of those mirrors that you would be shining light into, but you can calibrate each one and you can focus the light onto the primary sensor, which I forget what it is called on, on the satellite, but essentially it just allows more of the infrared light that they're trying to observe that all these stars in space are emitting into a focus point so you can get a much more crisp image. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I see and, a picture of it here I pulled up. It's got the um, the mirror from the Hubble versus the James Webb telescope. And yeah, the Hubble the is they, just... They took the same picture? It, it, it's um, They've got a person for scale between the two of them. And they've got the oh, one, the yeah. Hubble is just the round with the hole in the middle. It's like a... Yeah, Gosh, like a CD, I guess it looks like a CD. Yeah, the, the new mirror is like 6.8 meters. Yeah, much large. Bigger. I don't know if there's diameter. I don't think it's a perfect circle, but it is. These mirrors are a hexagonal shape. So if you could imagine a bunch of hexagons stacked on top of each other, you know, kind of pixelated in, in look, but, you know, not a circle. Kind of looks like, I mean, it kind of looks like a honeycomb, honestly. <laughs> You've got yeah, the exactly. little the hexagonal chambers and they're all next to each other arranged in a pattern. That's pretty cool. Um, I actually, I was going to send you these links ahead of time, but I just put a link in the, our studio chat. If you want to open that, that's actually a side-by-side -side comparison of an area in space that the Hubble has taken. And then they took the same, or not, sorry, it's not the Hubble. It was called the, the Spitzer, okay. which I haven't actually heard of before. No, I hadn't heard of that either. Before this. Okay, I got that link. Okay, that's cool. So it's got the the telescope sitting on top of like a um, kind of shape, like a diamond-shaped uh, satellite body. Huh. Yeah, I haven't really looked into this. It's pretty cool. But did, did, you, did you see the 
the two pictures though? Mm, I'm not seeing those specifically. I'll look some more. Uh, I might have sent you the wrong link. <laughs> uh, yeah, you sent me a NASA NASA.gov link. It's got a bunch of pictures of the James Webb telescope, but I no, I, I was able to pull it up on Wikipedia of all places, and I can see. I think the issues is I sent you both links. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, but you in this, oh, in there this picture you see like one that the Spitzers took a picture of and I don't know which area space or whatever. So like for, for those of you who are listening, if I say, Oh, it's the Spitzer of this image, like you, you, there's no way in hell you'd be like, Oh yeah. Okay. I know where that is. But <laughs> that particular image is you, you can see like just big fuzzy balls of light, um, which in the picture are representing the most, the, you know, the brightest stars taken from that satellite. But the one from James Webb, it's it's so crisp and there's so many stars in the background that you wouldn't have noticed. It's like the difference between looking up in the sky at night on on the earth, you know, like if if you're lucky enough to live in a place where it's kind of secluded from from heavy uh, metropolitan areas and there's not a much much uh, pollution or light pollution, you generally can see a lot of those smaller stars and stuff, but it's kind of like that where you go on a trip to some more secluded area and you look up in the sky and you go whoa like that's that's crazy yeah i I was able to pull that link up now that is impressive the difference yeah yeah it's it's amazing it'd be like yeah exactly like looking up on a sort of cloudy night and sort of seeing some stars versus perfectly clear yeah incredible i think for so like i said this this satellite's been in development for roughly 30 years and i'm not saying just being built and launched but you know from from the planning of it and everything uh, and many different universities and other countries have contributed to this too it's not just saying nasa's done it all but um it's probably why it I, took so long <laughs> <laughs> yeah, possibly uh, each each new big satellite that they've come out with in the past they call them i think they call them the ngst which is like a reoccurring process for creating the next biggest thing. I think it stands for next generation space telescope, but uh, the James Webb telescope is what the official name is. I think it was named after a previous NASA director possibly. Right. But the, the Hubble is like the, the light spectrum that it can see. It's just getting into like the infrared light spectrum. Whereas the James Webb telescope has been described as being a mid, a middle infrared uh, light spectrum telescope, which means, and, and like, let's say that the the infrared light scale, just to summarize it so I don't have to talk about that forever. Let's say the beginning of being able to see infrared is like on a scale from one to five, it's a one. The James Webb might be like a three and that's not a small scale. I think that's like a, uh, you know, it's, logarithmic so like each next movement is like an order of 10 or 100 times more sensitive and and why i guess why why are they going with the infrared spectrum as opposed to visible light or any other spectrum do you know? um primarily because all the light that like the stars give off in space they are in the infrared spectrum especially because they're so old and so distant that as the light oh. travels 
to get to mm-hmm. us, its its wavelength is so, I don't it's know, diminished shifted. or altered that that's really all we would be able to detect. That makes sense. Yeah, because it's, it's red shifted and the farther, that's right. So the farther you look out into space, you're looking farther back in time and it basically the, yeah, the light red shifts, the wavelength shrinks down. Yeah, now I'm familiar with that concept. Right, and and you actually, you nailed it on the head there. You said like, you know, you the light, you're basically looking back in time. That's kind of like the big uh, like mission statement behind why they wanted to do this. They they want to probe the cosmos to undercover history, uncover history. Um, and they claim like from the Big Bang to the creation of alien planets, you know, formation of planets and stuff. And then yeah, they've got that, other stuff in there too, like exploration and all that. That whole concept of looking back in time is always just kind of a mind bender to me. I mean, I understand it, but when we're talking about getting close to like the Big Bang, it always makes me wonder because they show images of, you know, galaxies and fully formed stars. And you would think if we're looking further back, it would be less and less developed. I don't know if that that makes sense, but that's that's always been a mind better to me. It's like, oh, we're looking back. We're just seeing stars that could be, you know, a light year from us, but they're you know, 10 whatever billion light years away and yet there's still stars and you know every time if you look back if you look one light year away you're looking one year back in time if you look 100 light years away it's 100 years back in time i believe that's how it goes so if you're looking um, at yeah it's it's the amount of time it takes for light to travel in one year or not uh it's the distance that light would travel in one year right so that's always been a, a mind matter to me if we're looking back that far, you know, we you think you'd be able to see the Big Bang or like, you know, stars forming right after the Big Bang. I, I don't know. It's it's a mind mind bender to me. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm no expert on it. I've listened and read enough to know. Um, Not really a fully formed thought there, but <laughs> <laughs> there's there's actually only so much around us that we will be able to see because. Um, as science has, has informed us as much as we can understand that the, the universe is still expanding and the farther out you get because the outer edges are expanding faster, it's expanding at a rate faster than the speed of light, mm-hmm. which means the light that's coming off of those expanding areas isn't able to come back and reach us right okay so that makes sense so it's not a direct correlation between distance and time like i was saying earlier because space is expanding and it's expanding faster i believe the farther away we look so if we're looking back if we're looking say 10 billion light years away we wouldn't be looking 10 billion years back in time necessarily is that kind of kind of the idea? Just because space is expanding faster than the speed of light? Um I I suppose uh in a way that we, we would be. But obviously that whatever we're seeing would be that old, so it wouldn't be representative of what's actually occurring there at this moment in time mm-hmm. but um you know the the 
the age of the universe is i don't even know it's 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 like 14 billion or <laughs> ridiculously old something. so any yeah anything that we could see is i think still <clears throat> still representative of a period of time where we can learn and make hypothesis on right on what's happening see i i just don't know that much about um <laughs> telescopes either so i don't even know how far away it's this one can look how, how far can it resolve images i gotta read um, that i'm here. not actually sure about but that would be interesting there's a whole whole bunch of stuff about redshift in here yeah hmm. but it so it after the launch it took 30 days just to get to where it was going which is roughly a million miles away from the earth okay and particularly why they picked that spot and we can get into this a little bit later is because there's there's points in space between two gravitational bodies known as lagrange points mm -hmm. um that word shouldn't necessarily mean anything. It was uh, given in honor of an Italian French mathematician. His name was Giuseppe Louise Lagrange. So he kind of did the math behind this. And then they're like, oh, yeah, okay. That's should probably just give these, these uh, solar, you know, phenomena his name. But the yeah, particular Lagrange point that they, that they sent the satellite to is... If you imagine the Earth and the Sun in a line, you know, so like, you know, the orbit of the Sun or the orbit of the, the Earth around the Sun. Uh, I don't think it's a complete circle, but just imagine that it is put the Sun right in the middle. And then it doesn't matter where in that orbit the Earth is. The Lagrange point is on the other side of the Earth. So it's just opposite of the Sun. Right. And technically, the James Webb Telescope orbits the Sun but in that point, that point always stays behind the Earth. And they did this for a couple of reasons, I think. <clears throat> One, the, the sun will kind of block the, or the Earth will kind of block the, the sun's solar radiation and kind of like heat and stuff. Mm -hmm. um, and that's really important because even though it's got the heat shields um, on the satellite, it needs to operate at a temperature of less than... 433 degrees Fahrenheit. Ne negative. That's yeah. pretty cold. That's getting close to absolute zero. <laughs> it's like yeah, 40 it's, degrees it's off. Like, it needs to be like under 7 Kelvin. Wow. Okay. And, so that's and real close. For those listening, uh, if you're not familiar with Fahrenheit, that's negative 508, five, excuse me, 258 Celsius. I think absolute zero And that's zero just like for negative. the onboard instruments to function... Yeah. Negative or uh, absolute zero is so like the coldest temperature you can get is like 273.15 or something like that. If I remember from chemistry. <laughs> so yeah. that's pretty close. Yeah. That's um, crazy. They initially only thought that the telescope would be in operation for 10 years because um, that Lagrange point that it's in it's known so there's five Lagrange points um, in in orbit as it relates to the Earth and the Sun. Um, this is a particular one that is known as a non-stable Lagrange point. 
And that means like every 23 days or so, they need to make little course corrections and, and you know, fix the orbit. Interesting. Um, initially, they thought it would only be in service for about 10 years. But I guess because the, the launch was like just so precisely planned and so very successful, they anticipate that the amount of fuel that's still left on board to make these corrections and stuff, they'll probably double, more than double the the useful lifespan of the satellite. So, Yeah, they always seem to undersell these things too. I know with like the, the Mars rovers, they're always saying, oh, it'll only be there for a year or five years, and then they end up squeaking out like 10 or 15 out of them. <laughs> I don't know those numbers right. are probably yeah, wrong. Didn't, but... didn't Perseverance like... I don't know when that got there. Yeah, like I said, I don't know the the exact timelines, but it seems like that's always the case. They just way over-engineer these things, which is a good thing. But So 10 years, and they say it might be 20 years now, so you never know. It might be up there for 30 years. Oh, no. Perseverance was the 2021. Mm. But I know they had one up there for a long time, and it went offline like a couple years ago. Is that opportunity i never remember might have been yeah let's see that's cool the lagrange points it's really interesting just it looks like i'm just doing some reading too listening to you but it's like just gravitational um equilibrium spots between two different bodies so it's like basically a zero point where the gravity of the sun and the gravity of earth are equal so then yeah, it's not um, getting pulled somewhere or another. It can just sit there stationary. Yeah, equal equal in relation to... Um, so it's... I don't know if this is the actual definition. I read something earlier and I put a summarization down. Uh, the Lagrange points are present when the gravitational pull of two large masses precisely equals the centripetal force required for a small object to move with them. Mm. Gotcha. So it's also dependent on you know, the mass of whatever object is in that area. Right. So that's why it's got to be much closer to the earth than the sun. It's not like orbiting directly in between. It's real close. No, to yeah, the it's earth. on the other side of the earth. But the, the other Lagrange points, there's, did you, did you find a diagram? Yeah, there's, um, yeah. On Wikipedia. <laughs> yeah, that's fine. Yeah. Yep. There's L1, L2, L3, L4, L5. Um, yeah. Showing them around. Around the sun and the earth in relation to them. And then uh, there's something on here. Geosynchronous orbits of satellites. And Lagrange points between the earth and the moon. <coughs> That's cool. I think another reason why they picked that point is um, kind of related to the first point I made. Um, with with the sun kind of or the earth kind of blocking the, the the light from the sun i think it gives it like an optimal uh image clarity without mm -hmm. you know a bunch of bunch of light from the sun coming through the sensors yeah that so makes it's sense. always just going to get like really crisp images i kind of assumed that the satellite itself would rotate around to be able to at any given time take a picture but I think what they do is I think they're planning they're they're planning missions so that 
as the earth is rotating around the sun, they'll just, you know, it, it'll, it'll end up pointing out in that right. direction. Right. So if, you know, half a year goes by, we're, we're now completely on the other side of, of the, the, the sun. Right. So it just has to point out and it'll get a 360 view right. of everything around us. I mean, I'm, I'm assuming it'll, they could probably tilt it up and down. Right. Or else you just get the same old pictures. Yeah. <laughs> I wonder how long it takes to get a picture too. It's not just like a camera. You just snap it. They probably have to sit there and point at something for a while. Yeah. I don't know. I guess, I guess it does like, well, also that Lagrange point is the closest of all the Lagrange points to the earth. So it's in that position easier to stay in communication with the satellite. And I think to that extent, I read that they, the satellite does like two big data dumps okay, back to earth a day or a week. I can't remember, but quite frequently. Oh, I'm, I just got my question answered um, from earlier. It says um, it can look back 180 million years <clears throat> of cosmic time. So it, it can, it's basically a hundred times um, better at resolution than the Hubble telescope. But yeah. so we're only talking about 180 million years. So that's way less. So we're not even thinking about <laughs> seeing the um, early universe, but it's definitely a lot better than we've got now. Yeah, for sure. And I think they're planning to use them uh, tandemly. Hmm. Even though the Hubble is has less resolution, I, I'm pretty sure I read they're they're going to use them as a team. So maybe the Hubble will be used more of like a oh we're seeing anomaly over there. Okay, well in a half a year when we actually get the satellite pointed in that direction, we'll right. check it out. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I, I know they can do interesting things too with like um, radio telescopes where you can get better resolution on something that's far away if you're taking the same observation, but on like opposite sides of the earth at the same time. So you're getting a oh, slight yeah, yeah. light variations. I don't know if they could do that with these, but I think they maybe. actually do that to tell how far away something is. Mm -hmm. So if they see a star and you take a picture of this area on one side of the earth, and then you take a picture of it when, you know, you, you're able to from the other side of the earth and just based off of, you know, because a lot of the stars in the background, they're farther away or closer or whatever. And the different angle that you take the picture of those mm -hmm. stars, almost like a background of like a, you know, a movie or like an optical illusion or something, they'll shift a little bit. And using mm -hmm. trigonometry, they can precisely, well, <laughs> as precise <laughs> as you can when you're talking yeah. about millions of light year, you can you can roughly tell how far away they are. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and they, they do that too. Like you were saying, once every six months, you're on opposite sides of the sun, so you mm -hmm. can you can um, you do that use that same technique that way too. But that's a that's an interesting problem trying to figure out how far things are away too. They used to do like just relative brightness of stars, to, so just very imprecise. But things are a lot better now. Just a little bit of trigonometry. 
Um, yeah, I don't know. I've been tracking that for, like I said, since last year is the first time. I, I, something like this would always interest me. Like, I know it would if I had heard about this five years ago. I'd, mm-hmm. Of course, I'd be like, oh, they're not launching for five years. And I'd probably pack it away for a little bit and catch back up on it. But I just hate how stuff like this is not. It's not in the media so much. Right. Yeah, it's been going on for all that time and nobody's really been paying attention to it till the last second. Right. Now it's now it's the cool thing. <laughs> Literally. I know I have very cool. It is very cool. <laughs> I wonder why it has to be so cool actually. Seven Calvin cool. So cool. Yeah, I wonder I wonder why it has to be that cool. That's interesting. Um, I actually read something about that. It's because the the instruments and the mirrors themselves on the telescope emit a little bit of infrared radiation, oh. and the colder that they are, they they are able to see the faintest infrared signatures coming from from space. That makes and sense. And more more accurately resolve and reflect them into the sensor. Yeah, because if it's got any heat on it, it's gonna emit some infrared radiation. It's like yeah, I use yeah. thermal cameras all the time exactly what it is so you just be getting yeah, noise heat signature yeah. cool it's yeah. funny to think there's there seemingly is an absolute zero mm-hmm. like on the cold well cold is relative you know like to stars like they don't give a shit about temperature mm-hmm. for us sure because we have to live but there's a seemingly end or bottom to how cold something can be yeah but the the heat scale the the temperature the it's it's seemingly endless yeah yeah that is i've never thought about it like that with a i don't think there is a top end i mean stars are probably some of the hottest things or like a supernova or maybe um like a black hole accretion disk something like that but yeah i mean because the temperature scale is limited on the low end by once mol or once atoms stop moving or molecules um, once they completely stop moving, that's the definition of absolute zero. But I guess there's no real upper limit. And I mean, you're talking about millions of degrees on the upper end. Yeah. Maybe tens of millions of degrees, depending. Um, yeah. Oh, that was the thing. Um, along with this, I've heard there's been news stories out there about uh, NASA making a big announcement in the next couple of months here. And I'm wondering, there's been speculation as a, as a car drives by. Sorry. <laughs> um, <laughs> of course. Uh, there's been speculation that it they might be trying to take a picture of a black hole. Um, and then we already have that, that one picture of a black hole, like the first one, but it was in another galaxy. And there's speculation that they might be taking a picture of the black hole at the center of our galaxy. Mm. Which is a lot closer, but it's also a lot smaller than that, uh, whatever it was, M87 black hole, which I was pumped about just seeing that picture. I've always been fascinated yeah, it was like by a, black holes. It was like a fuzzy red half circle. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Then they used artificial intelligence, uh, photo clarifying technology to try to clean it up because people are like, Oh my God, we got a picture of a black hole. That's out. That's awesome. And then you look at it and it looks like a company logo, just a half circle red. Mm-hmm. I really hope they try to take a picture of that with the James Webb telescope. 
Yeah, that would be awesome. Actually get a, a better better resolution on it because the black hole, if you actually, if you look at some of the simulations and the math that they do, it bends uh, light so much, it bends gravity so much that you can see behind it. So if you're looking at it, there'd be, it'd be like a planet, like what's one with a ring around it is Saturn. <laughs> um, yeah. So you'd have a, a wide ring around it and that's the accretion disk. That's basically the material that's falling into it. But then because the gravity warps um, the light so much, you can actually see the ring on the backside. <clears throat> Excuse me. You can see the ring on the backside of the black hole from the front. Sure. So it's like you can kind of see the ring go over the top and then kind of come out on the front. Yeah, you'd have to look at a picture of it. But No, if you look I at Yeah, and that's really interesting because you wouldn't necessarily know that that's what's happening because the light is warping. You wouldn't see a warped light because by the time it wraps around the one side of the black hole and then the light that does escape, it's coming to us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and they, I find that fascinating too, that same that same principle, that gravitational lensing, they actually use that a lot for looking at distant objects and you can see it um, around, It'll light will bend around distant galaxies. So you can look at, let's say it's a star or a galaxy way behind another galaxy and it'll warp around the one in the middle and then come to us and it'll be two separate images of the same, the same galaxy. It's really, I don't know. I find that so fascinating that the gravity actually bends light itself. There's some really cool images. If you just Google like gravitational lensing. Yeah. I think Einstein predicted that before we'd ever seen, seen an example of it. And it, it sometimes will make like a, a oh, complete yeah. ring. Yeah. It's like a, it's like a bubble around mm -hmm. a star. Yeah, exactly. And there's, I've seen animations too, of like a black hole moving across, um, basically let's just say from left to right and you can see it warping everything behind it and kind of creating a ring around the black hole. Yeah. It's like grabbing a glass sphere and putting it on your desk mm -hmm. and moving it across your desk. Yeah, exactly. I don't know. That's just something that <laughs> I was thinking about. Um, I actually just sent you a YouTube video that I watched a long time ago. Like, that's what kind of makes me think every now and then about how there's definitely an absolute zero, but there's no really known maximum temperature. Mm -hmm. Um, it's by Vsauce, so you're oh, gonna yeah. be like, oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> but his yeah, his videos are great. But oh man, there's actually there's an image out there somewhere too. I I thought it was on the description of that video. But it's got this this scale of heat and the image, like if you were to put it on your phone, it wouldn't all capture on the screen. And if you try to zoom it out to get it all on your screen, it would be so long you wouldn't be able to read it. But you zoom in, you just scroll by it and it takes forever to get to the end. But, you know, they, they start with how warm is your coffee? How hot is a hot summer day? And then they go to the sun and then they go to, you know, the what are what's the uh 
what is it, a quasar a quasar burst where yeah. like a star implodes and then through both of the poles mm-hmm. uh massive yeah. gamma radiation burst just shoots out for just i think it's like light years in both directions yeah yeah <laughs> Those are like intense. if we got hit by one, like it would immediately just destroy the atmosphere and like scorch the earth. Like we'd yep. all be dead. It'd just be instantaneous. You wouldn't even know what's happening. Just all of a sudden, right. the planet would just turn into coal, just black. You might be I'm fine for a little name while. that the Death Star. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's probably where he got the idea, right? I don't know, but yeah, neutron stars and then even black holes can do that. I think that's so crazy. We're just we're just lucky, you know that and um, uh, supernova. If there was ever one that was, you know, within like a hundred light years of us, it would just fry the planet. Just more things to keep you up at night, right? Yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> if that's gonna keep you up at night, oh, I have something that you might find, or other people listening might find, a little bit more optimistic. Right. There are companies that are trying to develop something that they have called a carbon neutral fuel. Okay. I think that might be a little bit of a misnomer. misnomer. I haven't found if there's actually emissions from this, but um, essentially what it is, is and the, the, the company that is kind of featured in some of this research that I've looked at is called carbon engineering. Essentially what they're trying to do is create a, uh, direct from air collection of CO2. And they claim that just one of these factories or facility, they're calling it like a collection facility, uh, removes megatons of CO2 per year, each facility, which um, is the equivalent of, it says the carbon removal work of 40 million trees. I don't know if that's like the... <laughs> Is that, is that how it. much CO2 those trees would have scrubbed out? Or is that the carbon created from destroying that many trees? Ah, that is confusing. It is confusing. And we, we would need an environmental economist. Ec- <laughs> economist? Economist? Economist. Yeah. Economist. <laughs> <laughs> or it's just the weight of the trees, the carbon in the trees. That was what I was thinking right away. But you brought that Possibly. up. Like, it could be that too. <laughs> But there, I guess, I guess Porsche has been looking into this for a while, but this other company, uh, Carbon Engineering, has been working on it for at least a decade. What, what is it exactly? Um, so I wrote down a summary from their website because they kind of explain how their technology does it. And I wouldn't necessarily say in layman's terms, but (laughs) in a more succinct process description, it's. They take the CO2 from their, they call it direct uh, DIC, I can't remember what it was. Basically, they take CO2 straight out of the oxygen, straight mm-hmm. out of our atmosphere. And they're, you know, their their sales pitch is, it's a limitless supply and we're going to be able to reduce the amount of CO2 and greenhouse gases, or well, just the CO2, but it's predominantly the biggest one that science is telling us that we're overproducing um and by taking it out of the atmosphere what we're doing is potentially not necessarily repairing the environment but you know taking out that the bad gas Mm, the bad gas the bad gas could be a good gas 
depends on how much there is. That's the real question. If there's zero, well, they're, they're, <laughs> then we're in they're, trouble. They're, yeah, that was my next question. Like, okay, that's great. I wouldn't call it a limitless supply, though, because even though we're overproducing CO2 and, and we're told that this is very bad and this is leading to human-caused global warming, what happens if we take too much out? Because the air that we breathe, is there's no there's no there's no element on the periodic table called air it's yeah it's hydrogen and and there is actually co2 in it that's supposed to be there and plants need it too you know it is a greenhouse gas too we can't forget that and the fact yeah. that if we didn't have it at all we would basically be mars uh, <laughs> uh so yeah it keeps well there you go keeps... that's how we we mentioned this last week exactly. elon wanted to die on mars <laughs> you just <laughs> You just have to recreate what we've got going on on Earth. Just pollute Mars like crazy with CO2. Go up there and burn tires and stuff. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> um, <laughs> so essentially, CO2, it's in the air. They have these facilities that literally pull the CO2 out of the atmosphere around us. And uh, CO2, for any people who aren't super knowledgeable in chemistry... It's one carbon uh, molecule and two oxygen molecules. Essentially, what they do is they grab this CO2 out of the air. They they claim they use clean electricity. I don't, they didn't really talk about why it's clean, but they use electricity <laughs> to electrolyze water. So this is something else, you know, they bring in water. And then as they do that, the water splits into hydrogen and oxygen. And then the CO2 and the hydrogen react to create hydrocarbons, which then can be converted into a compatible gas, diesel, or jet fuel. Really? That's what they say. That's interesting. So it's it's not just, they're not just using the hydrogen, they're actually making a fuel out of it, a hydrocarbon. Huh. Yeah. That's interesting. But, I mean, it, that's what gas is, is hydrocarbon, right? Yes, but we're, so, you know, we're collecting that. Interesting. Essentially. So that's why I think they say carbon neutral in that they're no longer oh. with this tech, this, this, this process or the, you know, making this. They're not pumping oil out of the ground and all that stuff. They're just using the stuff that's already in the air. Um, but I don't sense. know. Carbon neutral leads me to believe at first when I read this, that it's like, oh, so you're saying it also has reduced emissions. Like if we moved, if like we started using all this in our, in our vehicles, would you saying our vehicles would have lower emissions? And I don't think that's the case. Mm -hmm. We're just it's, kind of recycling it. It's just a zero, a zero sum game. You're using yeah. carbon dioxide to make hydrocarbons. So then it's, releasing approximately the same amount that you used in the process. Right. That's an and interesting their, concept. their website, um, at one point, you know, they say, you know, we can convert this into compatible gas, diesel, and they actually say, and more importantly, jet fuel. So I think that they're really trying to emphasize that with our, our modern distribution techniques and, and travel, you know, the jets and airplanes and all that stuff. They're saying that that's one of the the biggest contributors to CO2 emissions. Yeah, that's what we hear. Which I don't deny. I don't think that's not true. But I don't know what percentage of the overall CO2 pollution is coming from that. Yeah, I, th I think it is the vast majority is from 
transportation, just cars. Um, it's, Planes, yeah. It's like 20, well, I don't know. I just heard somebody talking about this. So I, I wish I remember the number, but I thought it was 40%, but that, that seems high. You say four or 40? 40. 40, wow. Well, with that 40% and the meat manufacturing we talked about. Yeah, yeah. Was that last two episodes ago? Yeah. Uh, there's 47% right there. We're, we're, we're getting close. <laughs> yeah. That's, that is a really uh, interesting concept, though. I mean, it sounds like it actually might be you know, feasible because we're not yeah. completely transforming our infrastructure. Um, if you were to burn these hydrocarbons, you could just basically just put them in your car. The existing vehicles or planes right now. They, they did describe this as a drop-in approach. And they mean that as in there's little, there's very little, and it's very easy to adapt the pre-existing infrastructure from vehicles to the distribution networks to be able to operate off of this fuel. Mm-hmm. And I like that because it actually sounds doable as opposed to some other, I mean, just converting everything over to electric cars. That's a hell of a investment in time yeah. and just re um, retooling our whole infrastructure to make that happen and then there's yeah, I'll, send just, you, I'll send you their website yeah i think the link i grabbed i was particularly on their own news and updates section but you can you know go to their homepage and stuff um, but some of their verbiage makes it sound like they're really trying to target big companies that have like fleets of trucks and planes mm-hmm. but i would I think it would be ridiculous to think that if they were able to do this on a massive scale, that they wouldn't be able to, in some part, supplement, you know, just personal travel gas stations. Right. And, and, and I think just from reading a little bit on Wikipedia so far and just kind of hearing a summary, it, to me, it sounds like it would not be very efficient to do this process. So it's going to cost a lot more. Um, And I think they even mentioned it here at some point that some of these costs would be offset by carbon credits. Um, So I did see that. So like you're already making deals with some companies giving them carbon credits. Yeah, exactly. So basically it would highly incentivize, like you said, companies with big fleets to, uh, because if you don't, uh, convert over to this technology, then you're going to be paying paying massive taxes. So, I mean that that just implies that it's not very efficient. But you never, I mean, it's always a always a possibility. Yeah, and it might depend on how many facilities they get up. Because, like, I don't I don't know at what process they're in right now. If this is like their website has pictures of like what seems like some kind of facility but it, it almost to me looks like a a granary rail yard yeah let me i would imagine these facilities would be huge okay here just to fact check myself um epa in 2019 says 29 percent of emissions which i love how they say emissions like uh, what kind of emissions i assume they mean co2 but yeah uh, it's 29 percent by transportation so i was off by is that bit. lumping air and ground all into one i believe so because light duty vehicles yeah they break it down aircraft is 10 percent of that of that 29 percent 
vehicles are 58% light duty vehicles. Oh, they're 29%? <laughs> yep, yep, yeah, exactly. It's a little complicated. But then they have a totally different um, uh, breakdown for agriculture, which we, we, I mean, we had talked about that before, obviously, agriculture with um, meat production and whatnot, but that says that's 10% of that overall number. I don't know exactly what that includes. If that's tractors and fuel and all of that combined. Anyways. Cow farts. Cow farts, exactly. Uh, let me pull up your link. Cow farts, chicken shits. Chicken shits. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's got to be... Um, we got to get to the point where it's like fallout. If you have ever played that video game, and they drive yep. around in nuclear powered cars, <laughs> and it's like a it's like an alternate timeline from the 1950s, but they're all driving around in nuclear powered, and everything's nuclear powered. But you can Is this see New how Vegas it, or which one are you talking um, about? Um, Fallout Three, I believe. Three. Okay. I've yeah. I played Fallout Four the most. Okay. Uh, yeah, I I put all my time into Fallout Three, and then yeah too much time <laughs> way too much time uh but yeah there obviously there's issues with having nuclear powered <laughs> plants in your cars you just imagine what happens when you get in a car accident call it the hazmat team every time <laughs> it'd be like you ever seen monsters inc yeah 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 one of, one of the monsters come back and he doesn't know he's got a sock stuck to his shoulder and somebody mm-hmm. sees it and they immediately like put him in a dome shave all his hair off and yeah. put him in a, a dog cone exactly it'd be everybody who drives by an accident on the highway <laughs> round him up yeah yeah i'm, I'm reading carbonengineering.com because because um hmm. Like you said, the fuel that we use now is a hydrocarbon. Mm-hmm. What would be the difference between a, you know, through the process that they're they're describing here, where um, the CO two and the hydrogen reacts to create hydrocarbons? Um, yeah. Are they able to, like, hydrocarbons is a very broad term for, yeah, and it's a a liquid it, carbon mixture. Right. Yeah. It's just, if it's a hydrocarbon, you're going to get H2O um, and CO2 when you burn it. So that like by definition, you're going to be emitting CO2 or carbon monoxide, depending on how much oxygen is in the reaction. But yeah, so they're not saying they're going to reduce emissions. They're just going to offset them by creating or pulling the carbon dioxide out of the air instead of like out of the ground that we're doing now i, I think is the we, idea because we're running off of an ethanol fuel right now right uh, a mix a blend they've been pushing that which i think is a horrible idea and i've seen some studies on that recently you know when they first started pushing ethanol i don't remember i became aware of it in the early to mid 2000s <clears throat> but basically just using corn to distill alcohol, which is what ethanol is, and then throw that in the gas tank. And somehow that's, once again, it's incredibly inefficient and it's basically having the same effect. It's still a hydrocarbon. You're still, you know, emitting all the bad things. Um, But 
there's just so many more steps involved in the process of growing the corn, harvesting the corn, distilling it, transporting it. It never made sense to me. And some people are starting to talk about that now. Um, just like, yeah, this is really inefficient. What, what are we doing burning, you know, alcohol in our, in our vehicles? But yeah, I think it's less than 15% usually. Uh, eh, it might be around 10% in all of our gas. Cause on, on most fuel pumps that you go to, you'll see, it'll say like, you know, the octane rating, it'll be like 93 or whatever. But then you'll see under that, it'll say in parentheses, R plus one, N parentheses, divided by two. That's how they mm -hmm. determine their octane rating of the fuel, which uh, R and M, I can't remember what they stand for. Yeah, I, I honestly don't know. I've seen that before, some sort of averaging, but I, I don't know. I don't know. Um, and I, I mean, ethanol is less efficient than gasoline, oh. too. R is research octane number and M is motor octane number. And I don't expect that to actually clarify anything. No, <laughs> it didn't really. This is like the listed versus the actual R, which is determined two. with a test engine running at a low speed of 600 RPM. Oh, the other oh. value is motor octane number, which is determined with a test engine running at a higher speed of. Oh, okay. So they're averaging it based on what speed you're driving kind of would be the idea, I think. Yeah. So the average octane rating, depending on how fast your engine's going. And I'm not sure it's probably more efficient at a slower speed. I, I don't know. I'd have to think about that. Might be more efficient at a higher RPM. High octane gasoline does not outperform regular octane gasoline in preventing no. engine deposits forming. <sighs> hmm. Yeah, I've done studies because I was... I'm. I got a very fuel efficient vehicle recently and I'm just kind of a nerd. So I was trying to figure out which type of gas to, to use in it to get the best mileage based on the cost. And I did some calculations and I don't remember the numbers, but I did come to the conclusion that just regular is going to be your best bang for the buck. So you do get more um, efficiency or you get a little bit better miles per gallon with the, the premium gas, but you more than lose out on that with the the cost and then the ethanol e85 is cheaper than the regular but you get much less like 20 percent less efficiency what about the vehicles that are rated for e85 mm -hmm. yeah mine is rated for e85 okay. um, i think the only difference between vehicles that are and are not are some of the gaskets and seals in the engine mm -hmm. because ethanol runs dry it basically absorbs water so in older vehicles, it will dry, out, dry your out the gasket. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So I think that's the only difference between E85 and not. But the whole thing is just creepy how it's crept into our our system. Just it's it feels to me, and I'm pretty sure that that is the case. Is that it is just a huge subsidy to the corn growers. You know, that's all it is. Could, could be, and it's not really a probably benefit to anybody it costs more it's less efficient it's more expensive yeah i already said cost more but it's you know we had to convert the fleet fleet of vehicles over to being able to burn the stuff and it's not giving us any benefit whatsoever it's just a subsidy but i mean i like the idea of being able to pull carbon out of the air but that gets me on a tangent too about um you hear people 
serious scientists, <laughs> once again, unknown serious scientists, but no people who have talked about geoengineering and basically I've heard about Dr. Sirius. Dr. Sirius. Yeah. He's got a PhD in BS, but, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, he, uh, no, um, basically these, they're talking about releasing, uh, certain particles into the upper atmosphere at atmosphere to reduce the sun, uh, sunlight actually hitting the earth and therefore cooling us down. And I'm just like, whoa, whoa, wait a minute, wait a minute. <laughs> this sounds like a really bad idea. It's just one of those things. Like, what could go wrong? <laughs> You're dumping, like, phosphorus or magnesium or something in the upper atmosphere. And we're going to cool the planet. It's like, okay, can you control that? Do you really know what the ramifications are? Uh, like, could you start an ice age? Could you kill off all life on Earth? You know, it's like... Maybe we should think about this before we do it. And it's kind of the same thought with pulling a bunch of carbon dioxide out. Because um, we, yeah, there's a lot of people, obviously, the mainstream, most people are saying that levels of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere right now are unsustainable and we've got runaway greenhouse. But there really is no evidence aside from computer models. And I was just, I pulled that article up and I wasn't sure I wanted to talk about it, but now I feel like I have to. Um, There's been studies done by the, is it the IPCC? Um, They're looking at their models and they're like, oh, we way overestimated the amount of um, warming assumptions. And back in like 2008 and 2009, And so all the studies that have come out or a majority of the studies that have come out predicting the temperature increase since then have been overstated dramatically. And they're now revising their models again. But yeah, I think that happens a lot. Yeah, yeah. Or like the the statistical data is skewed and like, you mm -hmm. know, a P value or some kind of statistical value is left out. And in order to make something seem more significant. Not that I'm saying that we shouldn't take care of our planet. No, for sure. Absolutely. And it's something we should study. I 100% agree on that. It's just, um, it's based on computer models. And if you feed bad information in or you create a bad model, you're going to get bad information out. And if we're basing massive global changing policies and reorganizing society based on these models, you know, it it requires some careful examination into how they're put together and their actual um, predictive value. Because, you know, it's not people out there measuring actual values. It's it's really based on models because there's so many factors and so many variables and we don't even know all the variables that are involved. So, I don't know. There, I went on my tirade. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's all good information to know and keep in mind. I think, uh, so what you're saying is, like, just due to how we have to collect this information and make these models, it's not inherent that people are intentionally omitting these things. It's just our no. best guess. Yeah. <laughs> any any study like this, and, like this and experiments and data collection, before they even make a, a suggestion to you know, the public about how we should react to this, there's 
peer studies, peer groups, mm-hmm. other non-biased people have to research or not research, but go over their their experiments, how they conducted it, make mm-hmm. sure that their conclusions are sound with with the information that was gathered, uh, just to make sure. I mean, that's that's huge. Yeah, I'm not suggesting that anybody intentionally <clears throat> did this. I'm just saying that. Except for the smoking companies. Yeah, well, I'm just saying if you want to take that next step, you could, but I'm not I'm not going to go there because we don't know. But um, yeah, it's just interesting that we can have a dramatic swing and I'd have to research the topic more. I only read a couple stories on it um, and it was kind of opaque and just or not very clear as to exactly what the problem was with the models other than that they predicted way more warming than was actually um, measured. So I don't know. I think it's just a very, very complicated topic and it does require study, but we got to be careful before we get whiplashed into um, seeding the upper atmosphere with particulates to block out the sun, (laughs) you know, science. Do you think, do you think that would ever happen? I see you see that all the time in like dystopian movies and TV shows where, <laughs> you know, they'll start out with like some crazy intro with just like a narrator reading to you the or like recapping what happened. It's like over the past 20 years, we didn't realize what we were doing. Yeah. I've exactly. seen the sun in 15 years. <laughs> exactly. Living underground. It's like more like the Matrix and... when Morpheus is explaining to him what happened. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're right. You're right. Sorry. <laughs> it slipped me. Um. I'm trying. I swear, I read it in the Guardian. Scientist wants to, but I had read a number of people actually talk about that. Um, it's just, it seems kind of extreme. Uh, a group of Harvard scientists um, plans to tackle climate change through geoengineering by blocking out the sun. The concept of artificially reflecting sunlight has been around for decades, yet this will... Forbes just had a pop-up, sorry. Yet this will be the first real attempt at controlling Earth's temperature through solar engineering. So the project is called Stratospheric Controlled Perturbation Perturbation Experiment. (laughs) I thought I heard something about that. Isn't uh, they want to put like big mirrors up in the atmosphere um, okay yeah so this one is by launching steerable balloons yeah okay yeah oh no 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 and it will release small particles oh. of calcium carbonate which is that's pretty benign from what i've read other people talking about um yeah i use that when i brew uh wine and beer it like prevents yeast from like over fermenting yeah right which does not relate to something <laughs> like that. Um, <laughs> that also yeah, sounds like yeah, a problem. Yeah, that too. makes sense. Like, I use it in brewing. <laughs> why wouldn't that work? Why wouldn't you just spread it all over the earth? <laughs> How could that hurt anything? <laughs> but you know, it, it's just stuff like that. You know, it's if if you perceive the problem as being way more dire than it may be, then you're going to start proposing. Um, dire solutions and this also talks about uh sulfur dioxide oh no 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 this was um a volcano erupting 1991 um it cooled the whole planet by half a degree celsius for around a year and a half 20 million tons of sulfur dioxide and i think that's what i had read um other people talk about is releasing sulfur dioxide 
Um, but you gotta be careful when you talk about this stuff or you really get the tin hat people in a tizzy, <laughs> the, uh, con trailers. <laughs> yeah. You're already I, doing it, man. Yeah. I've talked to a couple of people that I know or <laughs> mentioned that it took me, it took me a good five minutes in the conversation. Like, Oh, you, okay. You <laughs> actually see what you're saying. believe this. No, I think they're vapor trails, man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But why are they so long? They stick around. And yeah, I've heard that. It's just, yeah, it's so interesting. Conspiracy theorists are very interesting people. Um, But yeah, I mean, that's just my little tirade there. But, you know, that's why it's important in science to actually have like a red team, you know, people who are not on board with the project, who are willing to shoot down your ideas so that you come up with actually good ideas and it doesn't spiral out of control. Um, Cause if you, if you get a lot of people who totally buy in on an idea and then do the work on that, they're really going to be incentivized unconsciously or consciously to make the result what they want it to be. Um, right. So that kind of goes or, one or step farther. Re- Oh, go ahead. Yeah, or when they realize that it's not going to work, they just double down and mm-hmm. like try to come up with a convincing argument why, well, yeah, it's not necessarily what we were thinking, but this will be good. Mm-hmm. Yep, yep, yep. It's science, man. It's very interesting, especially when it gets woven into politics, then it just gets real messy real fast, so... We just got to be careful. And it's the pure stuff. It's like the James Webb telescope, you know, that's something you can just be excited over and <laughs> totally enthralled with. And they're probably going to produce some damn good science. At the very least, some really pretty pictures. Yeah, at the very least. <laughs> so the interesting thing about the James Webb telescope that I didn't think about till now when I said pictures um, most of these satellite pictures, that's not actually even what the satellite sees. They kind of use a filter on the images so that it's visible in a way that we take meaning from it. Mm. Like if, if we were to view just a straight up picture from a satellite, we'd be like, what the hell are we looking at? Right. I mean, you it, it's an infrared too, so technically exactly. you wouldn't be able to see it. <clears throat> So, like yeah. We wouldn't be able to see it. If our monitors were able to show us infrared images, we would probably not be able to see it. Hopefully not. Hopefully not. Hopefully not be able to see it as you got some weird adaptation. Um, yeah, that is a good point. So then they're, they're having to do some sort of, um, what would you call it? Uh, I mean, processing of the image to make it visible. Yeah, I'm I'm sure as soon as they receive it, they probably make sure that the file is not corrupt and I'm sure they send it through uh, some kind of algorithmic filtering process where it takes the information and kind of shifts it to uh, image technology that we're familiar with, you know, like the, the RGB uh, light formatting that our, our monitors and TVs work, work on mm-hmm. to show us like a, a color that we recognize. Typically, it is eyes. red just because we say infrared, but infrared is, isn't it white? It's well, the stuff visible. that we can pick up infrared <laughs> on is white. Again, that's just showing us something that we can see. Yeah, no, that's we because we see just a small spectrum of the actual um, the light spectrum, very narrow yeah. somewhere in the middle. But there's, you know, it's all all radiation. Um, it's just what our eyes actually pick up and infrared's just slightly below. Right. No, 
yeah, infrared and then ultraviolet is the other end. So it's like we can see between infrared and ultraviolet. And I don't know the actual wavelengths specifically that those are, but, and then, you know, there's some animals actually that can see ultraviolet and infrared. Um, and I think some colors pass that too, plus the full spectrum that we see. I think one of the, uh, one of the Cylons from Battlestar Galactica does this big, like, poetic speech about how he wants to be a robot again instead of a, a human because of that exact reason. He's like, I want to be able to see, a, you know, a star explode and see the, yeah. you know, the, the lights below the infrared range and all that. Yeah, the, the full spectrum. I mean, we can't yeah. even comprehend it either because we have no concept of what it would look like. You could just imagine that it's a slightly, you know, more intense violet, but it's like, that's not what it is, you know, or red. It's like, it's something totally different that we can't even imagine because we've think, never seen it. I think the people that would be closest to even possibly imag imagining it would be the people who were born without sight. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Just, the, you know, like you try to explain to them what colors are. Yeah. And, and they create their own understanding of what it is without actually seeing what it is and i could yeah. be wrong but just yeah. a thought isn't that crazy i mean to think that that might be true though that we have some sort of genetic basis for understanding colors it very well could be if somebody's never actually seen blue that they would have some sort of interpretation because yeah how weird would it be to be um blind and just oh yeah color it's like you have no concept of what that is really probably um, but oh, what else? There's something else I had. I just lost the thought. Um, I blinded you with science. You blinded me. I'm blinded by the light. Um, oh, oh, I did listen. Yeah. Basically genetically engineering, um, people so that we could see CRISPR other. Yeah. CRISPR, but we could see other, um, color spectrums, but we should talk about CRISPR next week. That is a good one. That's a scary one. <laughs> it's it's amazing, but also terrifying at the same time, I think. Yeah. There would have to be heavy regulations, for sure. Yeah, but it's like the way it's going. Um, the technology is fairly straightforward, and it's just becoming easier. <laughs> so yeah, it could be like you just... Um, you can create some sort of a CRISPR adaptation in your garage and inject yourself with it. <laughs> just like, I want, I want better eyesight. I want to be able to see it at night, you know, <laughs> just I'm going to edit this gene and that gene, especially with the, if you have access to the whole human genome, which I think it's out there. Um, it's public information. It is. They, they have mapped it all, but we don't know what most of it does. And people just experiment probably. <laughs> let's see what happens if I pull this gene out <laughs> and start drooling uncontrollably or something. <laughs> yeah. Cause there, there's so many relationships like, um, height, height is determined by, um, about 50 different genes, I think. Yeah, I could see that. Yeah. Cause there's probably one gene that tells your muscles how to, how to elongate and still function. There's another one that tells your cells how, how long or how big to make your bones. And then exactly how, you know, like 
you know, every, every different system in your body, whether it's musculoskeletal to um, respiratory, they, they probably all have different related genes that make them all work together or not grow disproportionately. Yeah, you would. Yeah, exactly. You'd have to have a bigger heart and all sorts of things. Not a scientist. No, I <laughs> just guessing. Scientists don't know either. So <laughs> this is true. <laughs> it's one of those realms where it's right at the verge, you know, just figured it out. Um, I do know that they released a, like millions of um, CRISPR edited mosquitoes. I think it was in Florida, of course, with the idea of basically making the next generation of mosquitoes infertile. <laughs> mm. What could go wrong? <laughs> what could go well, wrong? Well, yeah, in the short term, people are going to be really happy, but then we'll see like a decline in some other kind of uh, biome where they'll be like, oh, well, I guess I did not know that that was important. Yeah, exactly. And then all the mosquitoes in existence are, you know, whatever. Maybe they mutate in some strange way and can carry more deadly viruses or you never know. Your imagination can go wild. I wonder if you did that, if their lifespan would increase <laughs> yeah. through evolution. They can't reproduce. They can't reproduce. So then it's like the... Well, no, they wouldn't. There would be no evolution. They wouldn't be able to reproduce. Right, I guess technically that's, yeah. And then there's actually CRISPR technologies too that are, um, you can basically. So if you edit something, and it um, it can reproduce, then it's not necessarily CRISPR, but it's just the fact of um, inheritance that now you're passing along that gene, and you could get let's say it's mosquitoes, you get all mosquitoes on earth now because they're more successful, the mutated ones, they all have that mutated gene. And then the original mosquito gene that's evolved for millions of years is now extinct. And then what if something, you know, we've now created an artificial genome that's roaming around in the wild and we don't have the original and we don't really know what the consequences would be. Uh, it's kind of the same thing with humans too. You could uh, nature's gonna find a way. Yeah, you could create a bottleneck of some sort. But yeah. anyways, anyways, I guess we got to talk about that next week, right? We always seem to pull it out here with interesting topics. I know. Yeah, I'll write CRISPR down for next week. Okay, and I was thinking about Bitcoin too. It's it's partially related, partially related in my mind, anyways. Um, hmm. Maybe we can work that in, but. I'm glad we think of these things and I should be writing them down because this happens every week where it's like, we, oh, this. Yeah. You get on a roll of creativity and then it's just like, <laughs> you forget it by the next week. Yeah. I need to write it down too. Anyway. Thank you all for listening to this episode of We Talk About That. To recap, we discussed about the James Webb Telescope, emerging CO2 collection-based fuels, also known as neutral fuels and other related topics. If you found this conversation engaging and entertaining and want others to experience this as well, we encourage you to mention this podcast to your family and friends and to like, subscribe, and leave a comment on our podcast. And you can find us on most uh, any podcast platform that you're probably already using. Uh, any words from you, Gabe? No, I think you summed it up pretty well. Um, <laughs> join us next week. Yeah. Join us next um, week just for some a, more madness. Yeah. <laughs> We record weekly and we try to post all our episodes on Tuesdays. Um, as always, have a good day and keep that curious mind fresh.